Neil Hugh Kenner is a Melbourne-based brand and marketing strategist and the founder of NHO, a strategic consultancy that specializes in design. After nearly a decade in brand management, Neil now explores his passion for design by consulting to some of Australia's leading creative practices. Editor-in-Chief Susie Anetta meets Neil to unpack his career and learn why he thinks design is so important and how designers can better communicate their work. This is the Design Dialogues. Thanks for joining me on the podcast, Neil. Oh, what a delight to be here. Kind of sad that we didn't do this in the afternoon with a glass of wine. Oh, gosh, wouldn't that have been nice? We'll <laughs> have to do time. this again. Exactly. <laughs> I actually want to go back to early on in your career and talk a little bit about um, how you started, perhaps what um, you studied and where you worked before setting up NHO. Well, let's go back in time. Um, so if I go right back to the start, I guess, so I grew up in Melbourne, born and bred. My parents are actually Irish, so they immigrated here in the 80s. Um, and but I was born here and spent um, most of my uh, childhood here. And for as long as I can remember, I always wanted to be a journalist. And so particularly, you know, in the kind of high school years, I got really focused on being a journalist. And that was kind of my I guess I'm a d- determined person. So that was my kind of very um, singular goal and um, worked really hard to get into journalism at RMIT here in Melbourne. And um yeah, and, and loved that course. It was an amazing experience and, and met and still have some great friends from that time. But quickly kind of realised that actually my my idea of what being a journalist was, at least how it came across in the experience of that course, was, um, yeah, maybe not what I had originally envisaged. So, um, so I decided, okay, journalism maybe isn't for me. And so then I went into marketing and communications. And so, you know, there's obviously so many transferable skills, particularly from the journalism to the comms side. And so I did that for, I think it was nearly 10 years, um, uh, working as a marketing manager and um, really enjoyed that, but then decided it was time to go out and do my own thing. And without too much thought, really, but I just thought I'm going to work for myself for a while. And it was really as simple as thinking, well, if I'm going to work for myself, what do I love? And I love design. And so I thought I'm going to specialize in design. (laughs) And so I did that for a few years. And then that was just basically being a sole trader, working for myself as a freelancer before it eventually evolved into, um, into the agency that NHO is today. Fantastic. I can't believe I never knew that about you. Well, I mm. guess I've never asked. So I it's... actually always wanted to be a magazine editor. Oh. So well, aren't watch you out. lucky that you didn't do that? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a world of stress. <laughs> um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about what your intention was behind setting up NHO. It's obviously there's been a bit of a journey going from being a sole trader to the agency that you are now. But can you talk a little bit about more about that? Yeah. Well, it really started with, um, I had two very clear motivations or guiding, whatever you want to call them. But I, I just, I really wanted to work with differentiated brands and passionate people. 
differentiated brands because I really don't understand why people want to just do what someone else is already doing. I feel like there's enough of that in the world. And passionate people, because I think if people are passionate, well, anything is possible. So those were the two, um, I guess, guiding principles initially. And then um, working for myself, you know, it was really just about, I guess, a couple of years to sort of, I guess, just try things out and see what I liked. And um, and I did manage to carve out this niche in design, which was very deliberate. But what's evolved with NHO and where we are today in a more, I guess, formal structured sense is that we um, have a self-appointed, I guess, vision to elevate the value of design and its potential for positive impact. So while our kind of stream is very much the brand strategy and marketing side of things, our bigger purpose is really about, I guess, elevating and communicating that design has value. And so how many are there on your team now? We're just in a bit of a recruitment moment. So I think we're up to eight. I think, yeah, so eight. And so um, we kind of, we have three sort of um, uh, streams, I guess, to use that word again. And I think in a in a, uh, in a media sense, most people are familiar with us from more of the PR and the comm side of things. But um, we actually, in terms of our service division, we have um, brand strategy and marketing strategy. Then we have the PR and the comms, and we also have digital marketing services. Okay. And the team is sort of fairly evenly split across exactly. each of yeah, those? Exactly. Yeah, it is almost evenly split. Yeah. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about who your clients are then and what kind of services? We've talked a little bit about the range of services, mm. but maybe in a bit more detail about who your clients are and and what you do for them. Yeah, for sure. So um, our clients, so because of that vision for elevating the value of design, we, we define our target market as clients that share our value of design. So traditionally, um, and when I say traditionally, we're just over five years old, so it's pretty short, <laughs> short tradition, but traditionally that's very much been in the built environment. So primarily working with architects, interior designers, furniture, lighting, property, that, you know, that space. Um, but we have uh, in the last couple of years broadened it out, as I say, to businesses that share our value of design. And so that means that we work with people like the National Gallery of Victoria or Melbourne Design Week um, and are actively pursuing other more cultural expressions of design. Um, and, you know, design as a value can actually um uh, be found in all kinds of categories. So while, yes, the built environment is the kind of the core of what we do, we're, we're open to, to really anyone who shares that value of design. Mm. It's a nice little niche to have carved out. Mm. Well, I always really believed that uh, clients would respond to specialization. I think being a generalist can be dangerous um, and it definitely has made... I think the growth has been probably slower because of our niche. We've made it harder for ourselves because the market is quite narrow. Mm. That's not to say there's not great opportunity. There is, but it, it's definitely narrower than being a more generalist kind of agency. Mm. Um, but when you establish your own business and you're managing your overheads and all of those kind of things, you have the luxury of choice. And so it's been very um, measured and considered growth so that we could stay in that niche mm. and um, do what we love. And have you found, I mean, I guess it's a bit of a stereotype, you know, that creative people aren't necessarily great at <laughs> anything else. Um, <laughs> that is a huge stereotype, obviously. But yeah, I guess I found from some conversations that I've had with people of various disciplines that 
you know, what they're learning at school isn't necessarily teaching them how to run a business and mm. market themselves. They're really great at architecture or design yeah. um, and depending on where they've studied. So have you found that to be true, that your clients are kind of, you know, really quite appreciative of the kinds of adjunct services, I suppose, that you're able to offer to them? Yeah, for sure. I, I actually don't think it's necessarily limited to the creative um, pursuits or um, design or architecture or anything like that. I think generally speaking, I really believe in aces in their places and we try and adopt that as well. Like really respect experts in their field, whether that be the architect that you've commissioned or whether it be, I don't know, your financial planner or the plumber, you know, people are experts in their fields and you can't be expert at everything. Mm. And I think our clients obviously realise by the time they're speaking with us, they realise and understand the importance of brand strategy and marketing. Um, and they realise that that is a specialist area of knowledge and expertise that they don't have. So, so they come to us. Mm. So I would like to hear a little bit more about, um, you know, how designers or creative people or businesses that value design, anyone that you might want to work with, if they're coming to you, what sort of words of advice do you have about those kinds of clients working with an agency like yours? Where do you start and, and perhaps what are the benefits of having someone like your agency on retainer for example oh, what, a, what a question <laughs> <laughs> no i mean i i would say the first word that comes to mind is strategy and strategic planning um we uh we pride ourselves on being extremely strategic in in everything that we do and i think we might have had this conversation before susie talking about um PR and comms and a lot of clients come to us and say oh I want, I want PR I want PR and we and we have to sort of say okay that's that's great but let's let's take a step back so what are you trying to achieve as a business what is your long-term vision what are your short-term goals um, how are you differentiated uh, what what do you stand for what do you believe in all of this kind of foundational work that really needs to happen first before you start getting into the tactics of PR, of social media, of your website, all of those kind of things. So for us, um, one of the core ways that we start working with a lot of clients is through our brand strategy process, which really is about unpacking all of those things that really make a business, a studio, a practice unique. Um, and so that is absolutely the first step. And the other thing that we often say is um, PR and comms, while that might be very top of mind, people seem to be aware of it even if they don't really know exactly what it is there's kind of like this urgency for we need that we are always banging on about the fact <laughs> that it's one element of the marketing mix it for, for us it makes no sense to consider your PR in isolation in fact we often say nothing works in isolation so if your desire if you're an interior design studio and your desire is to you know have the phone ring and get more leads coming through the door and all of those kind of things well it's not about having one project featured in a magazine it's about being in the right places that's probably the first step but it's also about how does that uh, opportunity in the media then translate into your social media and your website and your thought leadership opportunities and your networking and you know it kind of goes on and on but I guess the point is to be thinking strategically not so reactively mm. Yeah, that's quite interesting. Um, and that kind of leads me, I guess, to my next question, which is, <clears throat> I guess, going back to the sort of PR and comms, which is maybe potentially the more visible part of what you do. And maybe that's why people are more aware of it 
you know, than perhaps the strategy side of things. I'd like to hear your take on, I guess, balancing stakeholders. Um, if you're, you know, working with clients who want to get a project, say, for example, if they're an interior designer or an architect, if they're looking to get a project featured in any kind of media, I'm not just talking about design anthology, um, how do you go about sort of balancing their expectations, um, working with the media, and then also all of the other many, 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 many stakeholders that are involved in, let's just say for an example, a residential project, you know, there's a builder that's involved that has their own kind of uh, strategy around what they want to do potentially with imagery that might have been taken or if it's a cabinet maker or a stylist uh, and, and even the photographer them, themselves. So um, I know that's a very long question, but <laughs> if you could perhaps unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, I think um, managing expectations and managing stakeholders is probably one of the trickiest um, parts of, of the job. Um, and I would say the first thing is really about clear communication, getting, ensuring all parties are on the same page. So, and again, it probably just comes back to a bit of strategic planning. So someone needs to take the reins. Often it is us. So we might be working with an architect, for example, and yes, there are all those other stakeholders. Um, and often people might be sharing the photography costs as well. And so then people have a, um, what's the word I'm looking for, but stake in, yeah. the, you know, <laughs> in the outcome. And so what we usually do is we communicate what is our plan and so um, probably the first thing to know about getting, uh, you know, an interior architecture residential project published is that if you want it to be in print and in increasingly online as well, you're going to have to honour an exclusivity agreement with an A-grade publication. So that is, um, that's probably the first thing that everyone needs to accept. So if we want it be in design anthology or whatever magazine it is, then it's going to be about understanding that we need to then understand where is the magazine at, what are the timelines for its issue. And I think once you kind of gather the, that information and you can communicate it to all the stakeholders, generally everyone's quite happy. And I think um, we uh, we probably pride ourselves on, on um, yeah, communicating clearly the benefits of that. And also I think often people just want to understand that there is a plan. Mm. And so it might be saying like, okay, well, we have secured this project in um, design anthology, but the issue is not coming out for X amount of months. Um, are we all comfortable to wait until then? Because for design anthology, or again, obviously I'm using DA as an example, but mm. you know, for any print publication, it's really important that they have original content for their readers. So it, I guess that's also about then communicating the different objectives or motivations of the parties. Mm. So I think often people don't necessarily understand how media works. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and so it is just an education, you know, it is an education. And also it's a decision for our clients because depending on where they are in the stage of the business or how many, how big they are or how many projects they're having photographed or whatnot, um, sometimes it's an easy decision to say, okay, well, we're just going to have to park that with that publication for four months. Mm. We're not going to, we're not going to touch it. We're going to honor that exclusivity because we feel like it's really valid for the long-term benefit of the project and the studio. But for others who don't then have another project to work with, that's a decision because then they might say, actually, we can't wait four months. Let's just do an online outreach, which will, you know, happen much, much more quickly. Mm. So 
yeah, I'm not sure if I answered your question, no, you but did. they're kind of some of the, the considerations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it is quite interesting, as you just sort of pointed out, that a lot of um, designers or creative people and other industries too, I don't want to pick on creative people, but I think it's, I find it quite surprising that there is uh, quite a lack of understanding around how media mm. works and also maybe just um, knowing how to leverage the material that you have to get the greatest amount of exposure. And I guess that's one of the benefits of perhaps working with an agency like yours is that there's almost like you're a conduit or a translator, mm. I suppose, or even a kind of a go-between. That's probably a very unglamorous term. But yeah, um, yeah, to kind of pull those two together so that everybody's on the same page. Yeah. I mean, we often joke about it being a delicate dance mm. um, because it is about getting the most out of the project for a client and achieving their objectives. Let's go back to what's the actual objective here. Mm. So as another example... Uh, one client might have no motivation to be published internationally because they think, well, my clients are not going to be reading some magazine that's in Europe or whatnot. Mm. We would argue, and other clients would agree, that actually from a positioning perspective, being published globally is really important. So it's actually not about getting the phone to ring. I mean, the phone rarely rings from being published in one print magazine anyway. Mm. So that's, again, about managing expectations. But, you know, they, they serve different purposes. And so you might be, um, you know, working on, uh, you know, private residential projects in Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane or wherever, and you might think, my private residential clients are not reading Wallpaper magazine, for example, so why would I bother? Mm. But from the positioning of your studio and global recognition, that actually then is a proof point for when someone might Google you, mm. you know, because they're weighing up their options, as most people are always weighing up multiple studios or practices to work with. Mm. And then, you know, suddenly, uh, oh, they've been published internationally. That's that's like a feather in the cap, isn't mm. it? It's a proof point. It's a point of validation. So, so it's just they serve different purposes. Um, and really thinking about that cleverly mm. from the outset is really important because something like a wallpaper magazine is not going to touch a project if it's been seen anywhere else. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, those are very wise words. Um, so we've probably talked about a few challenges, but I'd like to, I'm kind of curious to hear about what other challenges you and your team and an agency like yours faces. Um, and yeah, if there, if there are any other tips, I suppose, that your recommendations that you might have for potential clients, I, I keep saying designers, but I know you don't just work with designers. Um, and yeah, I guess any other advice for them to kind of be a little bit more in tune with, uh, yeah, I guess media or the entire media landscape, let's mm. say. Yeah, I think the first thing is to actually understand where you want to be published. Mm. So if you've identified that there's a magazine, whether it's an Australian publication or an international publication, and you think that would be great because I want to be in front of that audience because ultimately that's what we're talking about here. If you're going to be published, it's about being in front of the readers of that publication. Mm. And and that obviously means something to you. So once you've made that decision or you've you've kind of had that idea, you really have to familiarize yourself with the publication. Understand what the editors of that publication are interested in understand what they're publishing understanding what they already have published which might impact on the fact that they won't publish something because it's already been covered mm -hmm. um, take a look at the photographers that they like working with what is the styling like and successful publications are differentiated from one another 
you know, yes, of course, there's going to be similarities, but, you know, certain editors like certain things. They're looking for certain, um, you know, aesthetics or, you know, photography styles. I guess absorbing all of that because, um, Susie, I'm sure you can speak more clearly <laughs> to this, but pitching in something that is completely misaligned with the publication is all that's going to do is cause friction with mm. an editor. So show the editor or the journalist or whoever it is that you're pitching to, show them that you understand um, what, how the process works, A, but also B, that this is aligned with what their publication stands for. So I think that goes a long way and, and respecting, I guess, the process of media. So this is definitely something is a constant education process for us with our clients. And, you know, maybe we shouldn't expect them to be too well versed on this. You know, they're designing or doing what they're, you know, doing what they do the best. So that is our role. But just in terms of managing expectations for them to understand timelines, exclusivities, Mm. the implications of all of that is really important. And it definitely starts with being aware of, um, you know, what a publication stands for. And, you know, to use like crude examples, it would be like, well, what is a real estate publication going to be interested in versus a design anthology or versus the New York Times? Mm. You know, they're all they're all going to be quite different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, as an editor, I... It's it's quite shocking to me still after so many years how often we are sent things that are yeah not right for our audience, um, are the wrong territory, um, or a focus that we don't publish. Uh, yeah, it's already been published somewhere and they have neglected to tell us that. Um, a whole raft of issues. It's it's quite interesting mm. to me that this is still kind of a topic of conversation. So yeah. I guess that's where your benefit lies. Yeah. I mean, one thing I would say is that there are two schools of thought or approaches when it comes to editors, some that are incredibly cooperative and want to work together because they see that that's actually going to lead to the best outcome for the publication and other, others that I guess are less cooperative. Maybe that's um, being controversial saying that, but I definitely think that the more editors can communicate what they're looking for feedback um clearly if something is completely off then that's not you know you're probably not going to bother <laughs> providing too much constructive feedback but you know anything that can um help educate that person on why that project didn't work and i think also sometimes you know design designers and design it can be incredibly personal for the designers mm. and so it can be sometimes i think it can be taken personally that a project is not published because it's like a a critique on that Mm. project but I'm sure as you know often it's not about whether you like or dislike the project it's about how it fits with the rest of the book it's about how it's kind of you know what's been published in previous issues what you've already committed to what's coming there's all these other factors that are not a judgment on the quality of the work absolutely yeah I feel like I might need to take a little leaf out of that book I don't know how (laughs) how good I am at feedback but uh, you're absolutely right though I think yeah there are so many different uh factors that go into making those decisions and and you're, it is it's about what else has been committed to a lot of it is timing and yeah. and uh for design anthology in particular you know we only publish two issues a year in australia mm. and only four in asia so a lot of it is down to schedules and timing and what other commitments we've made and it's it is quite heartbreaking for me to have to say no to something mm. that i know that would otherwise be a really great fit in another issue yeah um or if you know it's a project that has had a lot of time spent on it by someone that you admire greatly they're they're not they're really difficult sort of conversations to have to have at times um 
and I am very conscious of the fact that, yeah, someone who's put that much time and effort into a project, it's, it would be very hard not to take that personally. Mm. So, yeah. Um, and for that reason, I actually often recommend that people sort of let us know about really big projects that, you know, they're quite excited about well before they're even finished so that we can sometimes try and sort of, you know, lock a place for them in mm. an upcoming issue. So yeah, it's one little tip from me. Yeah. One other thing <laughs> I would just add to that, which is slightly different to, I guess, talking about publishing architecture or interior projects is more broadly just talking about or understanding what constitutes newsworthiness. Mm. So while I guess we've been talking a lot about interior design um, and architecture magazines and publications, there's a whole lot of value in reaching a broader audience by being published in news media. So that is more your newspapers, whether that be dailies or your weekends or your newspaper supplements, those kind of things. That can be online as well as in print. And that's there's great value in being in those for that reason of reaching people who are not necessarily reading those design Bibles as much as we all love them. Mm-hmm. Um, but often, and it does depend on the section, of course, and depends on the editor, but often those editors are looking for something that is newsworthy. And so while we can all be guilty of thinking what we're working on is incredibly interesting and isn't everyone interested in what we're doing (laughs) and how great is it, you know, you really need to apply a critical lens to say, okay, well, the the editor of that newspaper or that section is thinking about what is going to be of value and of interest to their audience. So going back to the audience again and thinking, okay, well, what are we doing that is newsworthy beyond design circles. And so for our clients, often that is about kind of milestone business moments. It might be about the fact that they're working with a client that is newsworthy themselves. So for example, a client who um, is doing a workplace design for an ASX listed client or something like that. So I guess, yeah, just really accepting that there is the concept of newsworthiness is real um, and that you really need to apply a critical lens to come up with those newsworthy hooks. Mm, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, I'm going to change uh, my line of questioning slightly and actually just kind of circle back to the subject of design, given that it is, you know, incredibly important to you and a, and a passion of yours. And I'm going to ask you why you think design is so important and why is it so fundamental to your business? What a question again. <laughs> All the good questions. Um, I think, uh, so yeah, so we we do articulate our vision as elevating the value of design and its potential for positive impact. And that value of design is something that I guess on a personal level has really um, grown and through education and through, I guess, life experience. I think my eyes were opened up early on once I started working more and embedding myself more in design when I realized that there is so much consideration behind every uh, design decision, so much intent. And I think probably like a lot of people, I was probably guilty earlier on when I was less informed of viewing design as more of an aesthetic thing or more of a trivial decoration. And I guess once I started working with designers and I saw how much um, consideration was put into all of these decisions, um, most of which are so seamless if executed well that you don't never notice them. It just really fascinated me. And um, I think in terms of, uh, I guess, 
elevating that value of design, we see that we can do that through our work with clients. So if our clients are successful, then that's helping towards that vision. But um, you might have also seen, just doing a little pl a plug here, our um, essay series on the value of design where we invite design writers globally to contribute essays. Um, we've had people like Nolan Giles from Monocle and Stephen Todd from the AFR and um, just to contribute their ideas on the value of design. And I think what that shows is there's a real diversity in expressions of design. And, and, um, and I think sometimes because design is so broad and it is quite hard to kind of, you know, narrow down, I think sometimes that has worked against it in terms of a more pervasive awareness or value of design because people don't necessarily think about design. It's so seamless. It's everywhere. Mm. And so I find that fascinating. And so we definitely, while, you know, we work on amazing private residential projects for clients, you know, we're also working with clients on larger civic projects and more about urban planning and urban development and kind of, you know, the, the breadth of design is, is huge. So, yeah. Not love sure. that answer. No, that's great. I love it. Um, so my last question this has gone very quickly. I feel like I could probably chat all day, but I do have one more. Um, given that design is the area that you sort of focus on with the agency, do you have a favourite designer of any particular discipline? I have a few. Okay. I mean, I have, I have many. Do you um, want to rattle off a few yeah, and maybe yeah. tell us what it is about their work that you appreciate? Yes, I, uh, with pleasure. So I think... Um, one of my all-time favorite designers is Ilsa Crawford of Studio Ilsa. And I think that um, the reason for that, apart from the fact that her her body of work is incredible, is that she does such a fantastic job at actually articulating the value of design. She's been a passionate advocate for, I guess, this concept of human-centered design. And, and I would say her book, A Frame for Life, was seminal for me in terms of opening my mind and my world to design and the value of design. Um, so that is an absolute must read for anyone who's looking for a, um, uh, some something for their book club. Um, so yeah, so Ilsa for sure. And I think she does such a beautiful poetic way of, um, yeah, just expressing that design is important. You know, it's not trivial and it can really have a positive impact on your life. And it can be as simple as you know, the feeling you get when you walk through the door and you arrive home, you know, from work, you know, and that actually has value. Mm. That's not to be sort of, you know, trivialized. Absolutely. Um, another designer on the same kind of bent, but going back a little bit further would be Dieter Rams and his, you know, very famous 10 principles of good design. Um, and I think he probably comes from a much more functional um, bent, Although, you know, definitely it, it covers aesthetics and things like that as well. But I think he was quite visionary in terms of being able to identify these principles. And it's a really it's really fascinating if you go and look at it now with our kind of, you know, modern modern lens. He was, you know, when that when they were first written, he was talking about things like sustainability and environmental, you know, consciousness back then as well. So so Dieter for sure. Um, and then maybe one more, if I have to choose one more, is probably Alvaralto, the Finnish architect who, you know, I'm sure everyone's familiar with his work, but there's just something so beautiful and emotive about his architecture. And I guess, you know, he was very much about designing 
end to end from you know the building down to you know the furniture and everything in between and I think Alva did an amazing job of I guess evolving the modernist movement to take on more of a um I guess similar to Ilsa, a more of a humanist approach, but also very much inspired and entwined with nature as well. Mm. Um, so I think there's something just really special about about his work. And you know, I've been fortunate to to visit some of his work and visit his studio in Helsinki. And yeah, the, those are some of my most prized travel moments. Amazing, and aren't we all looking forward to more of those in the near future? Mm. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Neil. It's been a real pleasure chatting and getting a bit more insight from you on what it is that NHO does. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. 